Our scripture today is found in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's just for the people who are joining us online. Should we, uh... Okay, hold on. Let's just turn it off. <coughs> Should we off? Is it off? No. Okay. Maybe, Stacey, you can just, uh... It's on? Yep, it's on. Maybe it is. No. Okay. okay. It is? Yep. Okay. Is it on? You think so? Okay, good. All right, let's just uh, let's just trust the Lord and ask me. You know what? Even if it's not on, this thing has its own native mic, so uh, we should be back here. Hey, I hear you back here. What did you say, Tommy? I got it. It's always good when a sermon starts with some. Uh, gentle tomato throwing and rousing from the congregation, so I appreciate that. <laughs> awesome. So this is week two in our short series called The Other Side, uh, where we're focusing on the life that we cannot yet see, uh, eternal life or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, most of us were raised um, really considering eternal life to be found on the other side of the door of death. And so we have verses like this, um, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We've been taught to think that eternal life is on the other side of the door of death, and that's true. But this eternal life is also something that is available to us right now who follow Jesus. And that's because the kingdom of heaven isn't only somewhere that we go when we die. It's also uh, right here, right now, on, on, on the other side of the curtain, uh, or a veil. It's this far from us, as I talked about last week. Last week I, I talked about how the dimension of the kingdom of heaven uh, is actually overlying our physical world like a blanket lies over a person or like a fog lies over a valley. And that when we see miracles or salvation or revival or healing or people choosing Jesus, in a sense that is heaven breaking through to earth. So heaven is then and there, but it's also here and now. 
Heaven is found on the other side of the door of death, but it's also found on the other side of this invisible fabric of reality through which we move every day. So wherever Jesus reigns as king, this is where his kingdom is. It's known as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And one of the reasons why I've been very reticent maybe, you know, to teach on this unfortunately is because this goes against a popular understanding of heaven. We have this idea that we've been raised with many of us that um, when we die we exit planet earth and we go somewhere else, i.e. heaven, which is some sort of realm of the spirit. And it's hard to maybe combat that, particularly when this view of heaven, you know, like in the hymn, um, one glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. Um, that view of heaven is both familiar and very comforting. But the account of the Bible shows that we don't go to heaven. Instead, heaven comes to earth like a bridegroom coming to meet his bride. There will be a marriage of heaven and earth. And then the two dimensions or the two realms will become one. They will mesh. And so we have verses like Revelation 11, verse 15, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Now there's more to say on this, and we will get to it at some point, but just in case you're someone who uh, wants to investigate further and wants to maybe check my work, um, then let me share with you some of the people at whose feet I have sat as I learned this. So we have N.T. Wright, particularly his book, Surprised by Hope. We have Randy Alcorn, who, uh, who his 560-page opus, Heaven, is literally mind-altering. Uh, those are the big ones, but then we also have um, Scott McKnight and his book, The Heaven Promise. We have Michael Heiser, The Unseen Realm, which is just, which is very very scholarly, um, but also very um, helpful. And then we also have Sky Jatani, what if Jesus was serious about heaven? And if you want to start looking into this, then Sky Jatani's book, what, what if Jesus was serious about heaven, is a great introduction to this topic. So that's some maybe start off background thoughts about heaven. But our text this morning is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And I want to look at this passage in two ways. Number one, what does it teach us about last things? What, is it, what does it teach us to expect about the end of time? And then also, what principles can we glean from 1 Thessalonians 4 to keep us encouraged as we live on this side of the door of death and on this side of the curtain? And our one thought, our focus, our single thing this morning that binds together all of this is that we are to encourage each other with truth. Verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So straight away, Paul explains why he's writing. He's writing to inform the church at, at Thessalonica, um, and he wants them to be informed because being uninformed leads to hopelessness. 
The um, ESV Study Bible summarizes the context like this. It says, Timothy reported that generally the church community was doing well. However, not everything at Thessalonica was rosy. Some members of the church had died for verse 13. And because they were not fully informed about what would happen to deceased Christians at Christ's return, 310, 413, some apparently thought that those who had died would miss out on the second coming and that they had plunged into hopeless grieving for them. And with this as a backdrop, Paul's goal is to encourage, as he clearly says in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. And the vehicle for that encouragement is truth. It's information. And that's interesting, right? Because so often we want to encourage people in their hard times by saying nice things to them or comforting things, often with little regard to maybe what is true, particularly when it comes you know, to death. But Paul is, um, is showing us that when truth is correctly discerned, that alone is sufficient encouragement. We just have to speak the truth to each other. There were a lot of people in Thessalonica at that time who were uninformed or who were misinformed. And this led to an unhealthy form of grief, grief and an unnecessary form of grief. So Paul isn't here to say don't grieve, but he's saying, to, but he's saying grieve with the right information in mind. He's here to inject a healthy dose of truth into the, into the misinformation in order to encourage people. And what is this information that he presents? What is this knowledge that will fight off discouragement? Well, really, it's maybe twofold, we, we would say. It's the cross, verse 14, and it's the word, verse 15. It's the cross and the word. And friends, if we have an accurate view of the cross and the word, if we know how to apply the cross and the word to our lives, then we will generally be a lot more encouraged than we are right now. So first, the cross, verse 14. Paul writes this, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul, rep Paul represents, uh, or, or Paul explains the cross as a foundational belief. This is why I'm calling it our foundation. If we get the cross right, that Jesus died and rose again, then this will help to counter many discouragements in our life. Why is this? Well, because here's the logic. If Jesus died and rose again, then, then our last enemy, our final enemy known as death, is not the end. And Paul lays out the logic very clearly in, in verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so, here's the logic, here's the connector, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. If we believe X, then we can believe Y. X is the foundation of why if Jesus died and rose again, then God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep or died. Jesus' death and resurrection is the foundational truth that will fight off the discouragement of misinformation. And this is referring to last things, but it's not only last things. Paul also uses you know, the death and the resurrection of Christ elsewhere. 
as an encouragement. He says this in, in, in uh, Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. In this case, the death and the resurrection of Jesus gives access to the incredible power to live now on this side of the door, on this side of the curtain. It's not enough to just raise us from the grave. It's also enough to empower us to live for him now in his resurrection power filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 4 verse 25 is another example of, of how we can apply this foundational truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says this, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So our sins are dealt with through his death and we are justified through his resurrection. Is this truth useful and applicable and even encouraging maybe when we're encountering the lies of the enemy i would say yes if satan comes along and says your sins haven't actually been dealt with you can say yes because of the death and the resurrection of jesus christ here's another one romans 10 verse 9 if you declare with your mouth jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved romans 10 9 and 10. so in these few verses we've learned that the death and resurrection of jesus christ is foundational for salvation for dealing with sin for, for justification, for empowered living, and for the final resurrection. I think that actually this kind of sums up all of life, right? Every aspect, facet, chapter of life can be found somewhere there. So returning to our text this morning, our foundation for having an informed uh, view of what happens when we die is the cross, is the empty cross, and the empty grave for we believe that jesus died and rose again and so we believe that god will bring with jesus those who have fallen asleep with him but that's not all we aren't only given a strong firm foundation we are also given a guide to help us navigate the questions the doubts and the uncertainties of life and this guide is the lord's word verse 15 says this according to the Lord's word we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep those first five words are the ones that I want to focus on right now according to the Lord's word where does Paul turn to for a guide on how to interpret and navigate life he turns to the Lord's word he turns to the words of Jesus Christ he turns to the Bible. And I found this super helpful chart in the, in the NLV study Bible that is called Jesus' Teaching Background, uh, or Jesus' Teaching as Background to 1 Thessalonians 4. And, and what it does, you, you don't have to read it, but uh, you know the words are very small. But what it says is that every phrase or, 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 or each concept in our verses this morning, and actually what we'll be talking about next week, um, roots itself back to something that Jesus taught. So, for example, when, when Paul says that Jesus is coming back, 
in verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Where did he get this idea? Well, he got it from Jesus in Matthew 24, 27, among others. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Paul also declares that there will be um, like a gathering uh, at a trumpet sound. He says this in verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still in, alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Where does he get this idea from? Well, he gets it from Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Paul also encourages the church at Thessalonica with the image of clouds. He says, after the Lord's, um, after that, we who are still alive, who were left until, um, and, and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And where does Paul talk about clouds? Why is Paul so specific that he even talks about clouds. Well, because Jesus was similarly specific. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 64, You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on what? The clouds of heaven. So Paul talks about Jesus' coming because Jesus talked about Jesus' coming. Paul talks about trumpets and gathering because Jesus talked about trumpets and gathering. Paul talks about clouds because Jesus talked about clouds. We um, had a funeral here a few years ago here at Cornerstone. We were letting, um, it wasn't our church who were doing the funeral. It wasn't even someone from our church. We were just letting another uh, group of people use our space. So I wasn't doing the funeral and I didn't know the person who, who had died. And I remember you know, being sat where you are and hearing something being said in the funeral that caused my heart to sink. It's imprinted on my mind pretty much word, word for word. I had conversations with our board at that time so much um, so heavy did it strike me. And the person doing the funeral said something like this. Some people think that when we die, we float across a lake. Some people think that when we die, we float across the sky. And then they said, let's just leave that with God. This minister was intimating that the Bible has nothing to say about what happens when we die about the mechanics or the specifics. They were saying that the other side is unknowable. So let's just focus on the here and now and the business of grief. And I understand why they were doing it. They were doing it to relate to the people in the funeral and this, and this, and this minister did a great job of that, of relating to the people who were deep in the abyss of grief. But in trying to help this minister actually missed out a very important point that the details matter, and that the details bring hope. So it's not a case of the devil is in the details, but it's a case of heaven is in the details. In the details like Christ's second coming, like the trumpet sound, like the gathering of God's people, and even the clouds. These 
specifics, these details matter, because what we're being presented with, if you read First Thessalonians, is not some airy-fairy, wispy, insubstantial, heaven is what you make it nonsense. That's not what we see. We're being presented with specifics, with details, with information, and the purpose of this information is to combat the misinformation that leads to people being discouraged. We are to encourage each other with these words. So when you're, when you're drowning in grief, the cruelest thing for someone to do is to throw you a lifeline of sand that falls apart even as you grasp it. That is not a kindness. So friends, when it comes to the Bible, uh, knowledge is not our enemy. We don't have to be afraid of facts. We don't have to shy away from truth because it's the truth that encourages. The truth that our foundation is that Jesus died and rose again. And the truth that Jesus' words, his words specifically, but also the Bible, is our guide. That the Bible still speaks and has something to say to whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. We live in a society, we live in a country that has fooled ourselves into believing that the kindest thing we can do to our fellow citizens or permanent residents is to, is, is to pretend that we don't really believe anything strongly. But friends, when we do that, we're throwing our friends a lifeline made of sand. And the fact that we're throwing this lifeline made of sand with kindness, or even worse, niceness, does not make that lifeline any less useless. We do not have a lifeline made of sand. We have a lifeline made of the strongest nylon. And we are confident that this lifeline will hold them and will give them something to hold on to. The empty cross and the empty grave is our foundation. The word of the Lord is our guide. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this church in Thessalonica was in a bit of a state. They believed that Jesus could return at any moment now. And so they were ready for the imminent return of Jesus Christ, which is probably more than we can say for, for many of us who think that he'll show up sometime in the future. No, they thought it could be next week. They thought it could be in the morning. And if Jesus did return, then they knew, those who were still living knew that they would be with him. They had the confidence in him. But there was a lot of speculation going on as to what would happen. What what was the fate of those who had already died? Would they be overlooked? Would somehow Jesus miss them there in the grave? Would they be forgotten? So the church at Thessalonica didn't have a robust theology of the other side. And this caused them anxiety. And I think it's really telling that Paul's way to address their concern was to point them towards specifics. The specifics of the cross and the word. And the same holds for us today, right? That misinformation and disinformation leads to discouragement. But the means to combat that discouragement is found in the pages of this book. So we need to encourage ourselves and we need to have the means to encourage ourselves in our grasp. Therefore, if you're feeling overwhelmed with doubts and questions and, and worries, if you're being inundated with competing narratives or truth claims, then the best thing that you can do is to return to the basics, to the cross, the empty cross, the empty grave, and the full word of God. Sometimes we need to turn social media off. We need to turn our notifications off. 
We need to find an exit of the roundabout of sensationalism and noise and news. We need to recenter ourselves. We need to give ourselves the kindness of actually catching a breath. And the cross combined with the word enables us to do this. God's truth actually calms us down. It actually settles our spirits. And so Paul settles his worried flock, his concerned congregation, by moving them away from what they don't know to what they do know. He encourages them with truth. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who were left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, your fear that God will somehow miss those who have already died is unfounded. God will not forget the dead. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will actually rise first. So the dead won't be forgotten. Actually, they will be prioritized. He, he, uh, he kind of echoes a similar theme, theme in his letter. Letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Moving on, verse 17 of our passage. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, so it's talking about the clouds, it's talking about going away from earth somewhere else, and I thought that, uh, you know, Dan, you said at the beginning that heaven is like a dimension that overlies earth, that it's this close. So why are we talking about going somewhere else? Why are we talking about being caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air? You know, does this actually mean that we will fly away to another location, as that old hymn says? Well, no, because... It doesn't say that we will fly away to another location. It just says that we will meet Christ in the clouds. You know, the Bible is clear that heaven is going to come to earth. That the reality or the dimension of heaven will mesh with our dimension or reality of earth and that they will become one. The emphasis in the book of Revelation is that heaven is the bridegroom that, is, that will come to meet his bride. Heaven moves to earth. Heaven moves to us, not us to heaven. So how do we understand this meeting Jesus in the clouds in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16? Maybe the answer to this is found in 1 Corinthians 15 50 that says this, I declare to you brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So maybe in that moment of going to meet Christ in the clouds, that is the moment where the change happens where the transformation happens. Both the living, you know, the living and the dead will meet Christ in the clouds and they will be transformed. We will be transformed. Um, N.T. Wright explains it like this. He says, it would be nonsense to imagine that the presently alive Christians 
are literally going to be snatched up into the sky, there to remain forever. How would they then be with the others who, having died previously, will be raised and given new, new bodies? And so, as I look at the mechanics, I see that those who are dead being raised first, followed by those who, who, who are alive. That's just one, one generation who are still alive when Christ returns. Then all of them will be raised into the air. They are then transformed. They then return to earth in their new resurrection bodies to live in heaven on earth. Again, I'm not 100% sure of this, but it seems to be where the trail of crumbs leads me. And again, I find anti Wright's words very helpful here. He says this, and their meeting with the Lord, it doesn't mean that they will then be staying in midair with him. They are like Roman citizens in a colony going out to meet the emperor when he pays them a state visit and then accompanying him back to the city itself. I love that image, that if we are dead when Christ returns, that we will be raised first along with those who are still alive. We will then go out of the city. Sorry for my appalling image. I tried to get AI to create something, but it never got what I wanted, so I went old school. But if we are dead when Christ returns, we will be raised first along with those who are still alive. We will go out of the city, as it were, to meet our returning King and Lord, as an advanced party, as a welcoming party, we will then be part of this, of this cavalcade of rejoicing as the King returns to his fully united kingdom of heaven on earth, the new heavens and the new earth. We don't go to be with Jesus in some ethereal, spiritual floating place. Jesus comes to be with us on a physical new earth. Randy Alcorn writes this, he says, God, God doesn't promise us a non-earth, he promises us a new earth. If the word earth in this phrase means anything, it means that we can expect to find earthly things there, including atmosphere, mountains, water, trees, people, houses, even cities, buildings, and streets. Maybe even North Gore. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, I'm encouraging you with these words. I'm, I'm asking you to encourage yourself with these words and to encourage each other with these words. Don't allow the bad news of the day or a bad theology or a misunderstanding of God's word to discourage you. If your foundation is the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, if your guide is the word of the Lord, then you will not be shaken. And as you practice regularly returning to the emptiness of the cross, the emptiness of the grave, and as you practice regularly returning to the fullness of the Bible, you will be encouraged. You will not grieve like those without hope. Yes, you will grieve. We all grieve, but we grieve with hope. Because Jesus is coming again to be with us. And the dead will rise first. And then along with the living, we will meet him in the air. And we will be changed, transformed. And we will accompany him back to heaven on earth. We are encouraged. Because we know, maybe not in full, but at least in part, what is on the other side. Therefore, encourage each other 
with these words. Mm -hmm.